Do you all want to go? So we're looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 this morning, and uh, I'll read that to you. This is God's word for us this morning, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. So put this on your to-do list. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in Father, would you grant us this text this morning, grant us these words through your Spirit, for them to work their way deeply into our hearts and enable us to do them joyfully with heartfelt conviction for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So these verses that we just read are working out further what what Paul said in verses 1 and 2. And what he said in verses 1 and 2 is that we're to offer our whole lives to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him through being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that we may do the will of God which is perfect, acceptable, and holy. So looking just at this first phrase in in chapter 12, verse 9, is um, let love be genuine. And that could be translated, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? The word originally meant uh, an actor. They used it in Greek culture to talk about an actor who was putting on acting to be something other than he was. We don't use the word that way in today's English, but we use it to refer generally to someone who is speaking or behaving outwardly other than what he is inwardly, who covers up what he really is. Why did Paul start out with this, let love be genuine, let love be without hypocrisy? Well, as Jesus taught and as Paul teaches elsewhere, Love is the sum of all God requires of us. Love is the most important thing. It's the supreme virtue. So Paul starts with love, and he knows that we all struggle with loving without hypocrisy. At least I've noticed I do. Anybody else have that same struggle? A couple of you do? So I'm not alone. Most of us know how to be nice and friendly with people without genuinely loving them. What does Paul have in mind as to how we are to love one another? So what's he getting at? Is he talking about having loving affection for one another? Can we actually have loving affection for all all the people here today? Let alone for others? If you're like starting at zero and you don't love anybody in this congregation, then try loving one. Go for it. We can certainly grow in loving affection for others in our church family. That's going to look different from one person to another depending on our personality type, whether we're more extroverted, introverted, uh, how how we're connected with others in the body, uh, ages and stages of of life and, and ways that you're involved and so on. 
of course, the more you interact with people, the more you'll get to know them and possibly develop affection for them, or you may like them less. So that's a hazard. But since Paul just got done talking about the grace gifts, so in, in verses 3 through 8, he talked about using our spiritual gifts. What Paul more specifically means when he says, let love be genuine, is in your service or your general participation in the body of Christ, which is to be done in love, don't speak or act with hypocrisy. So you might ask, well, can we actually serve somebody without loving them? And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.3 is, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So you can do some pretty incredible external acts of sacrifice and not have love. How might this happen? Well, you can serve others not out of genuine desire for God's glory and their good, but so that they will be impressed with you. Or we can serve primarily to feel good about ourselves. Maybe you have an area of sin in your life that you think that doing good for others pays for or covers up. Like my doing good makes up for, for my bad. Like eating a piece of broccoli allows me to eat 15 pieces of Reese's peanut butter cups because the Halloween candy is there. Or you attend Sunday morning worship to cover your sins that you're not repenting of. I just, I, when I was thinking about that, I thought about the Ashley Madison website. And if you don't know about that whole thing, I'm not going to get into it. But I, I was saddened to hear of Christians being on that site. In Matthew 15:7, Jesus said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. As long as no one knows your sin, you're glad for people to think you're doing well because you attend church. So you smile during the greeting, um, sing the songs, and suffer through the sermons. And you're paying the price. Now, I'm not saying that until your or my motives are and lives are perfect, you shouldn't serve others or participate in, in gatherings for worship and fellowship. Because otherwise, I wouldn't be up here preaching, and you would not be here either. So it's, that's not the point. Because which of us here does everything we know God wills and doesn't do anything we know he doesn't will? Which one of us here has perfectly pure motives in why we're here and why we serve? So how can we possibly live this text, be, let love be genuine without hypocrisy? How can we possibly do that? Well, we can't, actually. We don't. On our own, we are hopeless, helpless hypocrites. That's your happy thought for the day. We need the gospel. We need the power of God for salvation. Through faith in Jesus Christ. 
That's why Paul spent 11 chapters expounding and expanding upon the gospel. He, he takes the gospel and he talks about, here's what it means for all that Christ has done for us so that we can be counted right in his sight and we can have hope of growing in, in right living before him. That's why he appeals to us by the mercies of God. And in verse 1, before he launches into his exhortations, he says, by the mercies of God, do these things. Because that's the only way we're going to possibly be, be growing and able to do these things. We can only receive forgiveness for our hypocritical love through faith in Christ. We can only be set free from our hypocritical love through being united to Christ. So that he works in us a new kind of life. We can only kill sin and, and live according to God's will by the Spirit of God. We must not suppose we can make loving without hypocrisy easier by dumbing down what good is and what evil is. Now, why do I say that? Because that's what Paul says in the latter part of verse 9. So get that whole verse up there. These three phrases, he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. Together, these, these phrases could be translated, let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. So in other words, genuine love includes abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. That's what love does. The words for abhor and hold fast are really strong words. Uh, and they indicate intense emotion. So he's saying really, really hate what is evil and really strongly embrace what is good. He's saying uh, be utterly devoted, uh, utterly revolted, sorry, at what is evil and earnestly cling to what is good, just to test what is evil and really love what is good. We can't love good without hating evil. In Psalm 97.10, um, the psalmist said, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. If you love God, you've got to hate evil. And in, in 1 Corinthians 13.6, Paul writes, Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Paul could have said love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices in doing right, and that would have been a valid statement. But what what determines what wrongdoing is and what right doing is is God's truth, God's word. It's not up to us to determine what what is good and evil for ourselves. Like our first parents, Adam and Eve, did. They decided, I'm going to choose what's good and evil. I'm going to define for me what's good and evil, and that's what the world's doing today in Mass. And as a culture, we think good and what is good and evil is always evolving. In Isaiah's day, many were calling good evil and evil good, so that was 2,600 years ago, and we're still going strong with that. Our culture is fast losing the ability to know good from evil. In fact, we are redefining what used to be known as evil and celebrating it as good. If you go by how the media reported, there was much greater outrage over the killing of a lion than over the um, videos of Planned Parenthood leaders talking with cavalier attitudes about harvesting parts of aborted babies for sale. Much greater outrage. Are we as followers of Christ in danger of going along with the culture and not abhorring what is evil and not holding fast to what is good? Of course. Of course we are. That's why Paul said in, in verse 2 of, of the same chapter, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Because our default mode is to be conformed to the world's way of thinking, unless our minds are continually being renewed by God's word. 
Jesus said of the last days that because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Man, I feel that I feel the danger of of my heart going numb due to so much evil, and I, I've got to watch over my heart so so it doesn't get numb and dumb to what's evil and what's good. God's heart doesn't get numb. He sees all the evil far more than any of us do, and he's seen it ever since the beginning of creation. And yet God still really, really hates evil, and he really, really loves what is good. So so we need God's heart. We need the Holy Spirit to continue to soften our hearts to what is evil and what is good. In hating what is evil, we can't help but to talk about the evil in our own culture because we're part of it, and it inevitably we're influenced by it, but we need to be most concerned about taking responsibility for the evil in our own lives. Whether the evil is stirred or stimulated from external cultural influences or just spills out of our hearts from our own motivation, we are to first hate the log in our own eye. And if I come into church with a log in my eye and I start talking to you, I start whapping you in the face with my log. So I I need to pull the log out so I don't hurt you. What do you need more hatred for in your life? What do you need more hatred for in your life? Gossip? Greed? Rotten speech? Quick to anger? Craving people's approval? Lying? Substance abuse? Mistreating your spouse? My spouse just walked into the room so she can tell you whether I'm how I'm treating her, but save it for after the service. You say, but I thought I was supposed to feel good about myself. I learned from watching a movie called What About Bob to engage in self-talk like I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful, I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful. Remember from Romans 7, the Apostle Paul said, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Really, Paul, you? I mean, you're an apostle, and yes, he he really hated the things he did, and he really did evil because he was still just a man. So as those who are in Christ, we all all still sin, and we should hate sin. We are not to redefine it and normalize it. We are not to give up fighting it and say, that's just the way I am. Surely God knows this is the best I can do. But God doesn't say, try hating what is evil, but if it doesn't work out, no worries. You say, but I'll just be miserable if all I'm doing is hating my sin. Well, yeah, that's true. If that's all you're doing is hating your sin. But that's not all Paul says to do. He says, just as we are to really, really hate evil, we're supposed to strongly love, strongly cling to, hold fast to what is good. And so what's the best good that you can hold on to? Yeah, Sunday school answer. Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. Just know him. Just read about him. Just pray to him. 
talk about him amongst your family and, and with your church family and be all about holding fast to Jesus and to holding fast to who we are in, in Christ. It's not because we still sin. That's not all that's true of us. If you're born again in Christ, most fundamentally what is true of you is you have a new life in him and you're counted right in his sight and you're his child. So live out of the identity of who you are in Christ. Hold on to that. Hold on to him. Hold on to who he's made you to be. In him, God gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We're not stuck in anything. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, as Peter, Peter says. You've got an amen section over here. Loving and living the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God is good. Loving and living the perfect, acceptable will of God is good. So we're responsible for our own lives, hating our remaining evil and loving the good that Christ has provided for us and wants to do in us. But we can't be indifferent to the culture in which we live. In fact, we're to bring gospel good into it. We don't have time to talk about all the evils in our culture today. But we have time to talk about one as an example. And that is our culture's view of sexuality and marriage as an example of abhorring the evil, holding fast to the good. We surely must hate the corrupting and collapsing of the right understanding of sexuality and marriage in our culture. We dare not evolve on on this from holding a biblical view on this. We must hold fast to what God says is good. God's word is really, really clear on it. I mean, it's, it's not fuzzy at all. God's word is excruciatingly clear. And holding to what it says will not put you on the wrong side of history. Although, it definitely puts you on the wrong side of the cultural tide. Sexual expression is for marriage only. Hope that's not news. Marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and, and one woman. It is shocking how rapidly this view of marriage has become equated with bigotry and backwardness. It's not progressive. Typically what gets called progressive is really regressive into corruption. As Jesus said, God from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. Hey, there's that word, the same word. Hold fast to his wife. Hold fast to what is good. And they shall become one flesh. So marriage is for one male, one female, and holding fast to one another in a covenant relationship. That's really, really good. A few days ago, it came out that Playboy magazine is no longer going to include photos of unclothed women. Say, why am I telling you that? Do do you need to drop your subscription? Is that good news or bad news? It's actually kind of both, and I'll tell you why. Uh, The reason that, that they're no longer including these pictures is because they can't compete because it's free on the Internet. So it's not worth their their economic investment to, to keep keep those kinds of pictures in their magazine. They were so successful in making porn widely accessible that they worked themselves out of a job, so to speak. 
they ended up losing economically, but they succeeded morally as one of the influences in tearing down the sexual moral fabric of our nation. So it's good that they no longer have the pictures. It's bad that they, they won the moral uh, shape of our, of our culture. That they made it just so commonplace, it's, it's not even economic for them to keep the pictures in there. So things will continue getting worse unless there's a major revival in our country. Um, we all know about LGBTQ, and there may be P now as well for poly, for being polygamist. Um, some are claiming that as their sexual orientation. And as one person explains, I've been this since I was 13. I've always had more than one relationship. Monogamy, okay, monogamy is being married to one person. They say monogamy is, is just not my nature. Wow. So how do we obey this text in relation to the sexual distortion and corruption of the times? Well, we need to love those who are LGBTQ. If you don't know what that is, that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer. We're to love them with sincere, unhypocritical love, which doesn't mean just acting nice to them. It means truly desiring to do good for them. But in loving them, we don't ever just accept that it is good and right for them to live as LBGTQ. We hold fast to what is good, a biblical view of sex and marriage. We hold fast to the gospel with its forgiveness and freedom from evil for, and for doing good. Now, I shared this uh, a little bit of this story several months ago, so some of you may recall. Uh, a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. She was a professor of women's studies at Syracuse University, and she was also a lesbian. She wrote an article for the local newspaper attacking a, a ministry that she thought represented patriarchal Republican Christianity, and that is um, Promise Keepers. She was slamming Promise Keepers. She got some hate mail and some fan mail. One letter stood out. It was from a local pastor. His name was Ken. It was kind in tone, but it asked her some challenging questions. With the letter, Ken initiated a relationship with her. She says that she had experienced mocking and condemnation by Christians in the past. She, she writes, that is not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends, she writes. They entered my world. They met my friends. We talked openly. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. It was clear to Rosaria that they didn't accept her as being a lesbian, but that they truly did care for her as a person. She never felt she was a project. Then, after two years of this relationship with Ken and Floyd, and more and more with the whole church, the prayers of the church and of their acceptance of her as a person, she came to Jesus. She says, Jesus triumphed. 
and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. She said she weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make her world right. Well, there's a whole lot more to her story. But fast forward, she ended up becoming a pastor's wife and, and a mom. You say she's still suffering. That was a joke. It's a pastor's wife. Fire to the frying pan. <clears throat> I hope this illustrates for us how we can live out Romans 12:9, genuinely loving people while abhorring what God says is evil and holding fast to what God says is good. This is the way of Jesus, who came into the world to die for our evil. He didn't just overlook it, much less redefine it. But in God's great mercy, he satisfied his own just hatred of our evil and accomplished for us eternal good. Forgiveness of sin, freedom from sin, and everlasting life. Now, uh, the remaining verses here talk more about what holding fast to good is. Because Christ has loved us this way, we ought to also love those whom he loves. So in verse uh, 10, the first part of verse 10, we're told to love one another with brotherly affection. So how do we love one another in the body? Uh, you could translate this, have tender family affection, have tender family affection for one another in brotherly and sisterly love. The church is God's family. church is God's household. We are all united to Christ as brothers and sisters. This is not just one nice option, a model of doing church. This is, uh, and it's not just for affectionate types of people who are just lovey-dovey types of people. It's, uh, it's the very nature of the church. It must be the very heart of a church's life. Remember, this text is, is a specific application of 12, 1 and 2, which says we are to dedicate our whole life to God as living sacrifice for a transformed life. Dedicate our whole life to God as, as a living sacrifice is an expression of a transformed life. You say, wow, that sounds pretty spiritual. It sounds pretty hyper-spiritual. What does it look like? Well, one thing it looks like is having heartfelt family affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You say, well, you mean I really have to love him like a brother? Do you really need to love Jim Bredhauer like a brother? Yeah, actually, it does mean that. So count the cost. It means, yeah. He's an easy guy to love. It really, he's, he's, he's a big teddy bear. You may even have to like him. We are to love those who are different from us. Some friends came down from Seattle yesterday, and they're, they're, uh, they're a Caucasian couple. But they attend a majority African-American church because the neighborhood they live in is mostly that, so they, they want to be a part of their community. They could have gone and looked for a white church, and that, that wouldn't have been sinful, but they really wanted to be a part of a community, even though it's very different from them. So uh, one of the, one, the, the woman is in the choir, and she's actually got rhythm now. 
she demonstrated how, how she can do the sway. Peter said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Wow, Peter, what, what, I, what do I got to do? Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter, you're commanding us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Can you do that? Yes, he can. God does it all the time. Commands us to love from the heart. How, how important is it to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, Jesus said, love one another just as, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples. If you have a fish on your back of your car. So fish was a sign of ichthus, and ichthus meant Jesus Christ and of God. They used to be a sign. Okay, if you don't get that, then. By this you will know, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How did Christ love his disciples and us? Well, he laid his life down for us. He removed the relational barrier. We can say it this way, he was and is for us. So we are to be for one another. To be for one another. How? Well, why do brothers and sisters develop affection for one another? There is that bond of being born of the same parents that others don't have. Have you seen siblings reconnect after decades of being separated? Like they don't even know each other, and they, they, they meet after decades, and, and that it's a huge emotional experience. It's like it's not that they have all this relationship built in, that they just know they have the same parents, and there's that, there's that natural bond that comes uh, I saw a news feature about two Korean women who were working at the same company, and it turned out they were long-lost sisters, and they had no idea. So after 30 or 40 years, they, they had a big emotional meeting, even though they didn't have any knowledge of one another. There's also the affection that grows and matures as we have shared experiences of growing up together, all, with all the joys and sorrows, the disagreements, and the reconciliations that come with it. So also Christians share that common bond of being born of the same father with the same elder brother, Jesus. And as we share life, joys, and sorrows, work through disagreements, grow in Christ together, family affection grows, matures, and deepens. The most mature community group in our church, notice I didn't say older, has set the bar high for brotherly love for the rest of us who are not quite as ancient, I mean, not quite as mature. As they are. Rosaria Butterfield, the woman I spoke about earlier, describes how close and supportive the LGBTQ community was when she was a part of it. Their doors were always open for each other when any had needs. She says she could not imagine how she would have survived her train wreck conversion and the following months and years had not her church family been a, that kind of community for her. So we, we love one another by, by praying for one another, being patient with one another, pursuing relationships with one another, providing for one another, protecting one another, playing with one another, and not picking and pestering one another. 
And then he says, uh, outdo one another in showing honor. The second part of verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. What does Paul mean by honor? It means to recognize people for signs of God's grace in their lives. Celebrating any good that they have received in Christ, any steps of growth in Christ, any ways they have blessed us or others. How do we outdo one another? Like start the competition. How do we start outdoing one another and showing honor? Well, we choose to give honor to others rather than seek it for ourselves. We delight in giving honor to others and don't focus on whether we are receiving honor. We seek opportunities to give honor to others, even those we might think don't deserve it. We, we look for things that we can give honor to and we, we go out of our way to do it. I'm going to pray. Oh God, grant that our love be genuine. May it be without hypocrisy. May we continue to grow in that. That we abhor what is evil. We hold fast to what is good. That we love one another with brotherly affection. That we outdo one another in showing honor. By your Spirit, work these things into our hearts, into our body more and more. Thank you, Father, for what you've already given us. We long to experience more of all that you have for us in Jesus. Amen.